All right, folks, grab your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 9 today. If you don't have a Bible, down this center column of seats are a couple Bibles stacked on top of each other. You're welcome to grab one of those. Use it as we're going through the Word of God this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, um, we'd love for you to take that with you. We're going to cover all of chapter 9 today. And again, another long narrative. Interestingly, um, there's, there's more black letters in my red little Bible than there are red letters. That means Jesus isn't talking a lot. But he's definitely doing some great things here in this chapter. Uh, because the chapter's so long, you're going to have to do some work here. You're going to have to actually open up your Bible or your app and read along with me. I'm going to have you read out loud the first 11 verses, and then I'm going to keep reading through verse 41. Is that okay? All right, let's read together. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Verse 12. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was on a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to, again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? 
How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Verse 35. Just uh, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and he is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and uh, what a beautiful day that you've given us. We rejoice in it. We're glad to be called the people of God, children of God, heirs of uh, all that you have in store for us. But in the here and now, Lord God, we're grateful to be uh, a part of your creation. We thank you uh, just for the words of, of the gospel of John that, that he's left us of the works of God through, through Jesus. And today we pray very simply that you give us eyes to hear. God, would you give us a new set of eyes like you did this man born blind today, that we might see all that you would have us to see in regards to the lives that you have given us individually, but also corporately as a church. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you open our ears like you did that man in, in Mark 7 in that crazy way and, and help us to hear, um, hear you clearly speaking to us, giving us direction. And God, we pray that as we hear and sense your gospel in this text that you would um, that you would change us. And we pray that in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So if you're new, we've been going through the gospel of John for a few months. We started in February, inching our way through it. We took a break in April, but we're just getting to to chapter nine. And essentially a gospel are those books, those first four books of the New Testament that gives us a theological, biblical view of the, the, the life, the, the life of Jesus. Um, we're in chapter nine um, and chapter nine begins a new section of, of the gospel. So chapter one was the prologue and the prologue just introduce, introduces us to all the things that are going to going to take place. And then halfway through chapter one, all the way through uh, chapter four, Jesus is gathering his disciples. Then chapter five through eight, Jesus is showing us all the conflict that happens with uh, those unbelieving religious uh, Jews and the religious leaders. And then chapter nine, we'll see Jesus start to hone, hone in his instruction to those that trusted him, those that believed him, those disciples that actually truly were following him. And this will lead um, pretty quickly to uh, him going to Jerusalem and uh, ultimately dying on the cross in our place 
for our sin. And so uh, really in the how John is, is laying out this story uh, today, chapter nine follows up chapter eight by showing us what it actually looks like for Jesus to be the light of the world. So a, a little bit of a review from from last week, really the last two weeks as we unpacked it, chapter eight. Um, these religious crowds uh, in John eight were furious at what Jesus had said. Basically, he told them, in essence, that they were entrapped in darkness. They were slaves to sin. They weren't actually the good religious people that they thought they were. OK, and they I mean, they didn't like his words at all. Jesus told them that without believing in him, they were actually children of the devil. I mean, think about that. If if one of your friends came up to you or even someone that you knew as a, a kind of an acquaintance that that I mean, that those words wouldn't go very far uh, in our society. And abs- they didn't go, go very far at all in that society as well. So Jesus issues these strong words. And so uh, at the conclusion of chapter eight, verse 59, uh, these religious people, I mean, they try to stone Jesus. OK, uh, it, it seems as if stoning is the is the, is the weapon of choice back in the ancient, uh, you know, first century uh, Jerusalem. Um, what were they doing by trying to stone Jesus? Well, uh, they were accusing him of the sin of blasphemy. And so in the Old Testament, uh, a person that attributed themselves to be God, Jesus said in many ways that he was God um, uh, and, and the Jews didn't believe him. So they were going to stone him basically to, to put him to death, put him out of his misery. But uh, 59 tells us, chapter, verse 59 tells us Jesus escaped. You would think that when Jesus escaped, he would just go into seclusion. He doesn't actually do that. In fact, as we jump over to chapter nine, we see that Jesus is is acting out all those things that we would think that he would do as the light of the world. And he ultimately is showing us what that looks like. He's proving himself to be the light of the world. And these are the things that we're seeing Jesus do. He shows us what suffering in in darkness and separation from God looks like. He shows us what he himself as a light of the world comes to, to do to bring people like this man born blind out of darkness into uh, a realm of freedom. And we see that beginning in verse one, verse one and two. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? A couple of things that are uh, interesting and that just stick out, at least to me, in these first two verses. All right. So you had all that debate and controversy with religious Jews and the religious leaders in chapter uh, chapter eight. And then right off the bat, again, instead of going into seclusion and hiding himself from people that wanted to kill him, Jesus goes about the life that God had sent him on earth to do, finding people who needed who needed him, who needed what he had to offer. And so he finds a man that was born blind. I don't know if you've ever had any uh, acquaintances with someone that's born blind. Typically a person that's uh, born blind. I mean, they, they, obviously they have needs that some of us that have eyes don't need. Now, I uh, when I was growing up, I had a, uh, a very close friend of our family, Alma, that lived uh, down the street from us. And my brother and I, we played at their house all the time. Alma actually could see uh, dark images, but she was legally blind. And I remember uh, many of Alma's senses were heightened. 
Uh, she could hear everything, sense of smell, uh, all, many things that we would take for granted. Those senses for her were, were heightened, but she absolutely could not see. She couldn't see really if someone walked in front of her 10 feet. I mean, she had all those accoutrements that a blind person would have. And so think about this. A man born blind, he had never seen the sun. He probably, other than just feeling his own face, had no idea of what he even looked like, not even his own family. Uh, my, my two colors are blue and red. He had no idea what my two, color, my two favorite colors looked like. That was his lot in life. Um, the text tells us that he probably lived a very lonesome life. He was a beggar. Undoubtedly, uh, he didn't have a lot of respect in, in this, uh, this first century community. Probably didn't have a lot of success in life. And so this is right at the back. This is what John is showing us about Jesus. He said Jesus tries to bring his message to people who are religious and people who are upstanding in the society who need the message. But they reject it. And immediately Jesus turns and gives the message that he had come sent by God to help and to heal um, people like this beggar. Jesus, John shows us that Jesus finds those who are hurting deeply who are suffering and who are isolated. And for those of us in the room, myself included, who are still trying to figure life out. I mean, you're just trying to make your way along the life that you're living here on planet Earth. I mean, that's really good news because that says to us that Jesus sees us. Nobody else might not see us. We're a blind man walking along, just trying to make our way. And, you know, sometimes those people are invisible to us. We'll just get out of their way and walk right around them. Jesus sees this man. He doesn't say he called out. He doesn't say he raised his hands, um, bringing attention to himself. He said Jesus just stopped and paid attention to this man. So Jesus sees people that are hurting and, and that need his help. And that's good news for us. He pays particular attention to those who are aware of their brokenness. Here's the second thing. So the disciples are walking with Jesus and they're seeing they're seeing Jesus in like his environment. This is what Jesus does. Um, and they're they're seeing him engage uh, a man who is on the side of the road, probably uh, begging, uh, born blind. And they're they're noticing how Jesus does what he does. And then they started asking him some questions. Now, these questions weren't special questions. Of course, when it says disciple, it's talking about those closest disciples, those 12 disciples that walked with them, talked with them, ate with them, slept with them, did everything with them. Those were the ones that would become the apostles and would start the early church. That's become the church that we are are a part of now. And they're not asking him questions that are, are, are special or anything. These are questions that just fall out of the, you know, fall into their heads as they're trying to make sense of the world as Jesus is redefining it for them. And so they see Jesus interacting with this blind man and they see the, the blind man's plight. And so they ask the question. I mean, so Jesus, I mean, why is it that this guy's like this? It's like you walking along with your kids and, you know, about two, three, four years old. They just ask questions all the day. It's like, mommy, daddy, why? I mean, why? Why is this? Why is this? Why is this? Why? And you answer and they ask again. And the disciples are really just like that. They want to know why is this man suffering? Really, what they want to know is what providential event has made this man like he is. And this brings us to what I think is the over overlaying topic on on John chapter nine. And it's the idea of sin and suffering. Why in the world do we have sin and suffering in our world? Now, I'm not going to do justice to, to answer that out of this text. 
Um, but I think it, we would do well to, to think about that for a little bit. In turn, and, and really, in this train of thought, there are at least three ditches that we can fall into. I call them ditches because we can fall into a train of thinking and, and not be able to get ourselves out. So three, three trains of thought in regards to why there's sin and suffering in our world. And the first is, is a pagan idea called karma. Okay, And I bring that one up first, um, not because it's a Christian idea, because it's not, but I would tell you, uh, as Eastern um, influences infiltrate the Western culture, we are uh, we're seeing this, hearing this, and um, having people believe this around us more often than not. I was talking to a Christian man, a part of this, uh, formerly a part of this church, maybe six months ago, and we we're talking about just how you know, plight happens to people. And I know this man knew Jesus, but he attributed something that had happened to him um, to karma. All right, so very likely someone in this room. Um, kind of thinks that karma is, is the way that stuff happens. And this is, this is the view of, par, of karma. It says we suffer in this life because uh, of bad things that we've done in a previous life, which presupposes that we've had a life before this life. All right, so let me just go ahead and kill that one. All right, here's what the scripture says. Hebrews 9.27 says, and, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. All right. So the writer of Hebrews has his perspective. And this is the perspective of the Bible. You got one life to live. All right. This is not your second life. You don't have a life. You, you weren't, you know, you weren't an elephant and then you end up going a human. And next you're going to be a dog or any of that stuff. You, you're going to live and then you're going to die. OK. Your soul's going to live forever. All right. That's what the Bible says about your life. And so God is not going to punish you in this life for something that you did bad in a previous life. All right. So I put that to death. Death. You can say karma all you want, but don't believe in it. All right. You can even just wipe that from your vernacular. Don't say that. All right. There's two other ditches that we need to deal with, though. The second ditch is believing that we're victims. And this belief is that our suffering or our circumstances is someone else's fault. I'm going to come back and explain that in a second. The third ditch is a ditch of shame. All right. And this one gets many of us. Um, it's blaming, uh, blaming all the things that go on in our life on ourselves, thinking that we deserve the suffering that comes our way into our lives because we're just bad people and we deserve it. And there's some of you in here um, that probably think that way. Let's handle the first one. Victim mentality. So the Jews of the first century had the perspective that anybody suffering um, their suffering had to do with their sin. If if um, if you were if you were suffering, then something that you did in a sinful manner is the cause of your suffering. It was a one way street. OK. And so this is what many of you know this to be called generational sins that 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 strike a, a tone. All right. It's, it's when the sins of a parent or this, uh, a distant ancestor leads to some the manifestation of junk in the kids' lives. Um, and there is biblical precedence to back this up. This is what Exodus 20, verse 5 says. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So it seems like in the Old Testament, one of the laws for just disobeying God was that God was going to come and not just smite you, 
but also smite your kids as well. I mean, and, and their kids and their kids and their kids. And that's a, that's, that sounds like God is a vengeful God, doesn't it? That's not the end of it. All right, so there's, there are different editions of this. Some of you have heard this before. Uh, one version is, if you screw up, God's going to get you. If you cheat your wife, God's going to break your son's leg. If you stop going to church, God is going to strike your daughter with a birth defect. I mean, that's like extreme, right? But some of us grow up in church settings that are kind of um, perhaps uh, conservative, but more legalistic. And they tell you God is a tit for tat God. You do this and he's going to smite you. And he's also going to smite your your relatives as well until somebody gets it right. Um, so uh, this is how I, I and since I've been in the church, this is how I've seen generational sins articulated. Um, our sins of anger, dishonesty, substance abuse, promiscuity, lust, those habitual sins that we never overcome and struggle with for a long time all of our life, those are passed from one parent to a child along with their tragic consequences. And some of you are familiar with that, I'm sure. Um, so let me give you some perspective um, on, on that, just to correct all that I've just said. Firstly, the, the Jews believed this, okay? So they believed in generational sins, and when the disciples asked Jesus, all right, so is it the parents' fault that this man is like this? They were saying, is this a generational sin of why he can't see? Um, here's the deal. We can, we can obviously draw connections to our sin and it manifesting in our own life and in the lives of our, our legacy, um, for sure. You see that, uh, you see that in a, a, a mom that takes drugs or uh, AIDS is passed on through a mother to the child. The child is born um, addicted or with that disease. Uh, a father, say a father beats his child, beats him so much that he gets put in, in the hospital uh, chances are that father was beat as a kid. And I mean, that's a version of, of passing on something that's happened to you, uh, to other people. Uh, there's untold number of books that tell the story of how 60 to 80 percent of the women that avail themselves to the porn industry have been sexually abused as kids. All of these are the strange ways that our sins and the sins that the, uh, the, the sins that we commit ourselves and the ones that are committed to us uh, can be passed down to those who come through us. Uh, but this is what the Bible says. And this is a sacred cow. It's a sacred, you know, sacred cow is one of those things you don't want to mess with. Uh, one day I'm going to preach a sermon series called Sacred Cows, where we're going to destroy all the things that that we think are in the Bible, but that really aren't. OK, and so this is what the Bible says. We shouldn't assume that we or anyone else is doomed by generational judgments from God. That's the testimony of Scripture. Why? Because the Scripture is like this. Ezekiel 1820. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor shall the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. What the scriptures are telling us is that God is God is not a vengeful God on those who who are obedient to him. And really, the uh, what we see in the New Testament is present in the in the Old Testament. And it's simply this. Anyone who repents and believes 
can be saved. And that that breaks the power of sin over your life, even those sins that you you may be subject to because your ancestors um, uh, exposed themselves to those sins. Jesus is the light of the world. That's what we learned in John eight. He frees us from darkness by price and by power. Jesus paid a ransom as he hung on the cross. His blood was spilt, um, atoning for every sin that we have committed and that we will commit. God's not going to dangle sins over you after Jesus has already paid for them. Jesus frees you by the word of his power. And, and this is what John, John 8 says, who the son sets free is free. So if you think you have, if you've ever thought you have a generational sin, perhaps you have something in your life that, um, that I'm, I'm not dismissing that you have something that your parents may have had. But here's, the, here's what scripture says. And we got to believe the word, okay? It says Jesus has set you free. All right, how do you appropriate your freedom? That's a different sermon for a different day. The third ditch is the ditch of shame. And this is a dangerous ditch. Um, so here's, here's what the thought is. If this man is born blind and his parents didn't cause his sin, surely there's something that this man himself has done to bring this on himself. And I would tell you, I am I myself, your pastor standing up here in front of you is prone to um, to this ditch of shame. Um, Many of us carry a deep sense of shame uh, of our own inadequacies. Um, We have this movie playing in our minds that show that. I mean, we see everything that we've done. We see things done to us and and we blame ourselves for the stupidity of of committing those acts to the to the point that along with the movie we got this voice that's reminding us that we failed and we don't measure up and that's the that's the ditch of shame you're inadequate you're a failure and when bad things happen you deserve it and so this begs the question I know I didn't resolve that. I'm going to resolve it in a second. I didn't leave you hanging. If you if you're in that ditch, we're going to resolve it. What's the biblical explanation for trials and suffering? I mean, what is the what does the Bible say? The truth is, the Bible says a lot about uh, the cause of trials, starting with the role of sin. You know, Jesus very could very easily could have just said uh, when the disciples asked, "All right, so Jesus, I mean, who sinned? I mean, was it his parents or was this man sin that made him blind?" Jesus could have said, "You know what." This is just sin doing its thing. Ever since Adam and Eve did what God said not to do, sin has ensued. It came in them. It's flowed out into the world. And all of creation is marred, just plagued with sin because of that one sin. Instead, he, he goes a different route. Um, and so let me suggest to you two, two overarching thoughts in regards to why we have trials and suffering in our world and in our life. The first is God permits suffering for corrective purposes. For those of you that have kids, uh, a vivid example is uh, any way that you might discipline your child. Probably one of the, the best things that you could learn, um, a biblical lesson for your, your parenting, is the difference between childishness and foolishness. Okay, Childishness are, is your kid being a kid. Okay, It's your kid touching things, asking questions, running through the house. So parents... All kids run through the house. You just got to figure out how to get them to stop running through the house or put some padding up on the walls, protect those things that, that, are, that are in their way. A kid is going to be a kid. Foolishness is different. Foolishness is when um, I know what to do, but I don't do it. And so by the time your child hits two years old, two and beyond, your kid actually knows 
they can tell what to do. They understand you. They know what yes and no is. They know what right and wrong is. Um, and so when your child uh, does what they know not to do, they're being foolish. And for that reason, you chastise. It's the biblical term. So in, the old, old, in, in the old school, they call it spanking. I'm not condoning spanking. I'm just saying that's what we used to call it. Some still call it that. Uh, so God permits suffering for corrective purposes. Um, this is what the Bible says, Proverbs. God provides a rod for the back of fools. And so when we do what we should not do, when we do what we're not supposed to do, the Bible says that God gives us disciplining measures to correct it. And we should we should know that God is going to do that in our lives when he needs to correct us. All right. The second thing is suffering is constructive. In other words, uh, suffering teaches us lessons about life that we would not learn otherwise. Suffering wings us from needing the world so much. Suffering helps us draw close to God. Here, here's how it is in my life. If I didn't have tough times some days, there'd be days that I wouldn't pray. There'd be days that I wouldn't need God. We, we really don't need God until life gets tough. Most of us come to faith when life's a little hard. Got some stuff going on. Jesus, help me. And so uh, biblical examples, Joseph, uh, obviously Joseph, uh, one of the uh, sons of Jacob, he has a dream that he's going to become great. His family's going to bow down to him. His brothers are jealous. They sell him into slavery. Um, he becomes second in command in Egypt. And obviously during the, the famine, his family comes and bows down to him. And he says these great words, what, God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And of course, Job, uh, the, the, just the whole story of Job is the story of, um, of, of God using our suffering for more than what it appears it, it, it was. And so if you're experiencing trial, suffering, or just a hard spot in life, here's the question to ask. Uh, I wonder what God is preparing me for. I wonder what God is doing that I can't see that, that he wants me to get out of this. More on suffering in a minute. It's important for us to see what Jesus' explanation for why this man was born blind. And we see that in, in verse 3. Verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed uh, in him. And so uh, the last part of this verse gives us two, um, two pictures of what it's like to suffer under the light of, of Jesus as the, you know, as the light of the world. To suffer with new eyes that Jesus gives us. That's what he does for this man. He takes his eyes that were old and could not do what they were meant to do, and he gives him new eyes. And with these new eyes, that man is able to see his life in a perspective that only God can give. And really what Jesus does is he gives two purposes um, of, of, of suffering uh, as as we unite with Jesus in faith, the first is so that work, the, the work of God can be displayed. And the second is um, so that the work of God might be displayed in this man's life. That is in his particular circumstance. All right, let's go on to verse six. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. All right. So. Um, we're not going to go through this whole passage very slowly. I'm going to speed up in a couple seconds, but I want to get uh, verse six and seven are important for us to understand because they give us the uh, the reason for the miracle and the the, the underlying um, the the underlying details of the 
the miracle really are in verse six and seven. The, 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 the history behind the, what he says here. This is the sixth miracle of the seven that John will talk about in all of John, the, the gospel of John. It's not that John only saw six miracles. It's just that he he's giving us a snapshot of the what he thinks are the most important, because what uh, what Jesus does in, in John is he's showing us a picture of of what salvific life uh, in Jesus looks like for those encounters that he has with a myriad of people. And so what get what just I mean, verse six is a trip, actually. I mean, does anybody does that strike anybody as weird to you? I mean, think about what Jesus did. He's, he, he spat on the ground. He made some mud like a little two-year-old. And then he took that mud and he used it as mascara. Is that mascara right now? Mascara on this dude's eyes. Okay? And then he told him to go wash. Um, I, I got one word for you. Yuck, right? <laughs> um, so people like us, we just think, I mean, what in the world was Jesus doing? There is no... Um, there is no... Uh, parallel story to this. In the Gospel of Mark, there's a story where there's a guy that couldn't hear. He's deaf. And Jesus spat on the ground. Spat. It says he spat. So we're assuming he, sp- he spit in his hands. He took those hands, probably spit on his fingers, stuck them in the man's ears. And then the man was able to, I mean, I guess his ears popped and he was able to hear. Here, um, you know, he just made some mascara out of the dirt, smeared it on the guy's eyes. And, and uh, voila, he, can, he washed and he could go see. Why in the world would Jesus do that? I, I, here's, I'm going to make it short. Here's why I think. Scholars have a lot of reasons. I think Jesus didn't want to be mimicked. I think he was just trying to um, give them a way of, of bring, bring attention to no one but himself. Think about what would have happened if Jesus had just taken a vial of oil and taken a little bit, touched that man. Um, you would have had like all these vendors break out with... Uh, with Jesus miracle, uh, miracle eyelash um, anointing oil. Come get it. Ten dollars a bottle. Check it out. If you give a seed of faith offering or, or sow a love, love offering, then you get uh, a day's supply for free. In fact, if you give up to a hundred dollars, we'll give you a prayer rug along with it. Can you I mean, can you just like see us people like us doing something like that? So here's what I think Jesus was doing. I think he was making sure there was nothing special in this miracle that people could mimic. There was nothing special about that mud, folks. It was just mud. There was nothing special about Jesus' saliva. In his 100% humanity, it was, just, it was spit like your spit. Okay? The miracle was in, in Jesus applying it to the man's eyes. I think what was going on is Jesus warned there to be no mistake that this was not magic. It was simply a work of God. So that when people recall this miracle, their attention would be left seeing Jesus, talking about Jesus, amazed at the power of Jesus. That, that's what it was. And so we can also see um, an emphasis that Jesus is putting on the spit and the mud in verse 7 when he gives this next command. And this is what he says in verse 7. He, told, he tells the man, um, I'm trying to find verse 7. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. Um, There's a lot of detail there from the Old Testament that we could cover. The pool of Siloam was a landmark um, in ancient Jerusalem dating back to the days of Isaiah the prophet and 
King Hezekiah. Okay, Jerusalem was about to be sieged by the Assyrian king uh, Sennacherib. And uh, basically, Hezekiah is considered a martyr. Uh, a modern engineering miracle, they diverted or they sent uh, a river that ran through Jerusalem out of the wall. They directed it a different way so that they would be able to survive during this siege. Therefore, Siloam means sent. And so here's what's going on. Jesus tells this man to wash the mud off of his face at the place called sent. And here's the detail. Recall how many times in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world sent by God to, to do all that I'm doing. Okay, I'm going to call some scripture verses. Uh, verse 16 of chapter 8. I can't help myself but read a couple of them. Yet even if I judge, my judgment is true for I not alone. I'm not alone who judge, but I and the father who sent me. Verse 26. I have much to say to you about much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to you the world that I have uh, declared to the world what I've heard from him. Also, verse 29 and 42. Jesus is he's declaring himself as the one sent by God okay, to, to do all those things, to bring light to the world, to be our bread, to be uh, the water, the water that nourishes us. And so what's Jesus doing? He's symbolically telling this man Go wash in in a place called sent. You, you see the semblance? Jesus is the sent one. He's saying, go wash in a place called sent. And so who's the one that sends? It's, it's Jesus. Okay? It's okay to say Jesus in church. Jesus has said, he's, he's saying, wash yourself in me. Okay, I'm the one that you need to wash yourself from. When you, uh, to experience healing, uh, to experience restoration, you have to be washed in me. That's the key to your, the miracle I'm going to do in your life. And so on this idea of suffering again, um, I think what we see Jesus doing, uh, he's doing all this stuff so that we see he uses tragedy and, suffer, and suffering to show the world who he is and what he's like. And so he gives this man new eyes in a really crazy way. But he gives us new eyes so that he opens us up to uh, a reality of seeing uh, the perspective of our lives. And so if you're going through suffering, Jesus giving you new eyes sees suffering not for suffering's sake, just because life is hard, but he gives it a perspective that, that God is do, perhaps doing something in you, in, around you, or through you to help other people know who he is and what he's like. Here's something to write down. In all of our suffering, we have the opportunity to either experience the cruelty of this world or experience the goodness of God. That's what Jesus says in verse three. He says this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed. And so those of you who are Christians in the room, when we suffer, we need to learn to pray things like this. God, show me how you're revealing yourself to the world through what through what I'm suffering. Lord, use my suffering to show me who you are, but not just me. Would you show yourself to my family, to my coworkers, to my neighbors? Father, help me to trust that you're working through me in this, that you're working somehow in all the ways that I'm experiencing trial and suffering. Here's the truth. There's no such thing as purposeless suffering. There's no arbitrary suffering that any of us goes through. 
But there is such a thing as wasted suffering. And here's wasted suffering. It's suffering when we refuse to believe that God can use uh, use our heart, the, the hard things that we experience in a way that he would gain glory or that we would even learn from it. It's wasting our suffering just by trying to press through it as quickly as we can. I, I tell you, God is doing something in all of our trials and all of our suffering. If you just pause and ask him to reveal what he's doing. Honestly, many times suffering is a means of grace in your life. Um, I was a brand new pastor. 2008, I'd been an elder for a while, but I was a vocational pastor for no more than six months. And I met Brett and Melissa. I was a duty pastor at my church, uh, large church in North Carolina. And uh, it was Christmas Eve. I met Brett and Melissa. They were going to induce labor, and she was going to give birth the next day. And Brett and Melissa knew their baby was going to be stillborn. The, The brain hadn't developed fully, and they were preparing themselves for the death of their child. And so I came to the, the hospital. I didn't know them at all. They barely had been members of our church. And I prayed with them. I shared the scriptures. I encouraged them. Um, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. He knows what he's doing. And they had the baby. Um, the baby survived for 20 minutes, uh, and then the baby died. And so they came to me a couple of days later and said, we want you to do a funeral. I was like, what in the world? I mean, I had been a pastor for six months. I knew nothing. I knew a little bit, but I, I knew nothing. And, uh, and so we did a, a funeral for this uh, a baby that survived for 20 minutes. And Brett and Melissa, uh, M- Melissa had some hard days following that. But here's what struck me about Brett and Melissa. Somehow they knew that God was working through their trial and through their suffering. And some of the words that this young 20-something couple said to me in the midst of that hard time, I mean, it just... It, it, it baffled me because I, I don't know if I would have had faith and strength um, to go through what they went through and see God in it. Their, their hope was that uh, their hope was they thank God that their baby wouldn't enter this, you know, just the normal suffering that we enter in this life. They thank God for that. And al- although they knew they were they would have some hard times coming up and they really did. They had a really hard time just dealing with it. Um, they were. They were hopeful for what they would learn about God and about themselves through this suffering. And I would tell you, a year later, they had another baby. The baby was called Faith. Another baby, they had, uh, I think they had hope after that. I think they're on the third baby now. God redeems everything. So will we waste our suffering? Will we waste our suffering? Or will we love God to reveal himself through our suffering? God gives us new eyes so that we can see our suffering, our trials, those things that are hard in our life in a new way. Brett and Melissa, uh, I thank God for them. Um, What they endured led them through uh, a a greater communion with God, and God can do that same thing for you. Jesus says also in verse 3, this man was born blind so the works of God might be displayed in him. And the purpose here is that in this man's unique circumstance and his family of origin, his unique experiences through life, he might see God in a different way through him, through what God had purposed for him. And so how was that work of God displayed in him? Obviously, God gave him physical healness, but later on he gave him spiritual healness. He allowed this man to be healed of his brokenness, and really he moved him to a closer uh, a step closer of becoming who he was created to be. 
he moved him a step closer to wholeness. And so the rest of this passage, I mean, it's, it's a neat passage. We've already read it, um, but the guy doesn't know what to do with this new life. The, the, the religious people come and they berate him a little bit, and then they come and interview his parents, and his parents are afraid they might kick out of the synagogue. And so they said, he's of age, you can ask him. All do we know, he's our son, he was born blind, and now he can see. And so, you know, religious people are a trip, right? And so they call, the, they call the blind man back again and say, look, dude, give glory to God. First of all, we know that man's a sinner, whoever he is, because he healed you on a Sabbath. No one would ever do that if they were religious. And then um, the, the formerly blind man just has some great things to say. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. I mean, you, can, you just can't make that up. Those are just great words. Obviously, that's where um, some of the, the words from Amazing Grace are from. The religious people get so frustrated that um, uh, they basically kick this man out into the streets. And that's when he has an interaction with Jesus. Another interaction with Jesus. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I mean, so this is the conclusion of of this interaction here. Jesus brings him to faith. You know, one of the messages of this narrative is, is Jesus is showing us that being separated from God relationally is like being born blind. Being born blind. Blindness is mankind in his lost, helpless condition of sin, desperate for a need for a savior. If you're blind, there's nothing you can do to restore your sight. Doctors haven't figured out how to restore sight yet. You need help. But then he goes on to show what's coming to him and receiving new, what new, receiving new eyes is like. He heals him physically, and after that, Jesus restores his spiritual sight. And the guy gets it. He actually comes to faith. He believes, and he worships Jesus. He's restored in his relationship with God, and... Uh, the end of this is Jesus uh, brings judgment on those who are religious. We'll finish right here. Verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. So here's the reality. I think that we should get out of this, out of this passage, out of this narrative in regards to our suffering. We don't always know the reality of why trials and suffering strike us. And it would be wrong for us um, to, to even suggest why somebody else is suffering in regards to their sin or their parents' sin or even even our own. You know, we can waste a lot of time trying to make connections. This person did this. This person did that. We won't always know the cause of suffering. But in every instance, everywhere in the world, this remains true. For those who are willing, Jesus uses our suffering to mold us into the people that we were created to be. That's what happens to this blind man. Jesus gives us new eyes that we might, that he might put our lives in perspective. And so if you're in a difficult season of life, 
here's the offer. Jesus invites you with a little bit of spit and some mud. He wants to smear some mascara on the, the eyes of your life. He wants to give you new eyes. And that's a yucky way to, you know, it's a yucky way to receive it. But that's the way Jesus gives it. Will you receive it today? Let's pray. Father, we're always surprised by your word and the way it challenges us. And so very simply today, God, I ask that you would give us new sets of eyes. So some, some here are in the congregation and you've given the new eyes uh, through salvation. Jesus has come and he's opened uh, their eyes to their sin and their need of a savior. So I thank you for that. But there are many here who having new sets of eyes, Lord, sometimes we fall back in the ditch of, uh, of thinking that we're the victim or even blaming or, or, or feeling ashamed of the ways that we have committed sin and the sins that have committed against us. God, we pray that you would come as the light of the world today, that you would shed light, open our eyes to help us see as your word lays it out, who Jesus uh, is, what he's like, that he comes as a light in a dark world. He comes as a light to, to our own lives. And just like a light, he dismisses the darkness in us. That like a, a beggar, a blind beggar on the side of the road who doesn't know which way is which, he comes and, and he sees us, people who desperately need his help. And with a little bit of spit and some, and some mud, he offers us healing, restoration, a new set of eyes to, for which we can see life. It's, and it's not a trouble-free life, but it's a life that we can navigate because he's with us. Thank you for new eyes. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.